Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our Ferndown campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Okay, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had your life changed in a moment? Have you ever had your life changed in a moment? So you were going in one direction in some capacity, and because something happened, or you met someone, maybe you read a book, maybe uh, circumstances of life, maybe you just had a revelation, and your life just turned around and went into the other. Dean, you met me, and your life changed in that instance. <laughs> uh, and your life just changed in that and I'm not talking about some kind of fairy tale where the fairy godmother waves her wand and your, and your clothes turn into a pumpkin. Is that right? No, that's not quite right. But, and you go to the ball. Uh, no, I'm not talking about I'm talking about real life. Something dramatic takes place. Maybe, maybe you got married. We were at a wedding yesterday and, there were, and uh, some friends of ours that were getting married. And you know what? Getting married, it changes your life, doesn't it? You're not the same again. You meet that, that person who is just the love of your life, and you're never the same. I remember seeing Fru across the dance floor in our student union when I was at university, and my life was never the same. In fact, there's a story about that. She, um, I probably shouldn't tell it, uh, but... Um, <laughs> um, no, it does actually, it makes me look stupid. <laughs> um, what happened was, she, we, we were at the student union, it was, it, was, it, it was, I don't know, disco night or something. We were dancing away, and... And we chatted at a few parties, and she said to me, do you want to come back to my place for a coffee? And I said, yes. And then actually, as we were walking out, I said, actually, look, I'm really sorry, I don't do that. And she looked at me and said, you don't drink coffee. <laughs> I had in my mind that she was trying to, you know, have a wicked way with me. I was a poor, innocent, naive young thing. But she wasn't. She just invited me back for a coffee. And, and I went and we had coffee and we chatted. And, and my life was never the same. And in fact, another time, uh, uh, in 1997, so 22 years ago, I was in a service much like this one. And there was a, a speaker, and he, a, a preacher who was speaking uh, about Jesus telling his disciples to cast out their nets on the other side of the boat. You know that story in the Bible? He tells them to throw the net on the other side of the boat and they catch a load of fish. He wasn't a particularly good speaker. He wasn't even a great message. But actually, in that moment, I felt that God said to me, it's time to give up your job at the bank and start working in your love, which is music. And so, you know, it's a big thing. I had a mortgage, I had a wife, I had a home, and to do that, it was, it was a, a beginning of a total transformation in my life, uh, that one moment. And maybe you've had one of those moments too. It could be the birth of a child or even the death of someone that you love and who loves you. That can change you. That can make you see life in a completely different way, can't it? So we're in this series, Encounter. And... We've been looking at different ways that we encounter, uh, particularly Jesus, both in the Bible and in our lives today. Um, the dictionary defines encounter as you come into contact with, or you meet, or you have a, a meeting that's perhaps unexpected. An encounter is, is an unexpected meeting. And in the Bible, there's loads of people who unexpectedly met Jesus. They came across Jesus, had an encounter with him. And their lives 
changed from that moment on. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at, we looked at Zacchaeus. And we looked how when he encountered Jesus in that moment, his life changed. And that's still the way of things, I think. I believe that's still the way of things today. We meet Jesus, we have an encounter with him, he communicates with us in some way, either through a revelation or we're reading the Bible or in a service like this, you hear, you hear a message and you encounter Jesus. And when you do, it changes you, it changes your life. We come away from that encounter changed in some way. And actually, if I'm honest, that is really my hope. Every time we come together, when we meet on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or in any group, my hope is that for me and for you, that we will encounter Jesus and we will leave different to how we've arrived. I always pray that prayer. Those of you who, when we're in that back room praying before the service, I always, always pray that prayer. Lord, I want to leave different than I've arrived. I want you to change me today for the better. And I know that actually that only really happens when we encounter Jesus. And this is the purpose of this particular series, Encounter. Not to get, we don't want just to get more knowledge about Jesus, the Son of God. We don't just want to read stories about him from the Bible. We don't just want to know who he is. I want us to know him better and to discover that as we know him better, that we're being changed. So our starting verse for today is taken from the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. In fact, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And towards the end of his life, this was the last gospel written, towards the end of John's life, he lived till he was quite an old man. He, he thought, actually, I better write down my experiences with Jesus. And he did. And there's some great stories in, in, in the book of John about his life with, with Jesus and the things that Jesus did. And in verse 12 of chapter 8, we read this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the Apostle John, this disciple, um, in his gospel, he makes quite a few of these statements that Jesus said, these what we call the I am statements. Because Jesus said about himself, I am uh, the true vine, I am the way, the truth, the life, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, um, I am the bread of life. So there's all these descriptions that Jesus made about himself. I think there's seven in total where he says, I am. And this is really important because we all know that throughout history, there's been a big question mark about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And the people are always debating that. Was he, was he just a good man? Was he just a prophet? Was he just a guy who had some good ideas? Was he actually the son of God? Was he the uh, Messiah that the uh, kingdom of Israel were waiting for? Was he these things? And so it's important that Jesus tells us in some capacity who he is. So when he says the words, I am, he's giving us some truth about himself that lets us know a little bit about his identity, a little bit about who he is. Each of those metaphors tells us truth about who Jesus is. It doesn't give us the full picture. Uh, just like I could tell you, I am, I am a dad. That, might, that is true, but it doesn't give you the full picture because I'm also a husband. I'm also a musician. I'm also a pastor. I'm also many other things. But it gives you some clue. It tells you something about who I am. And the same with Jesus. When we read those I am statements, it gives us an indication of some important aspect of who he is. So in this passage we just read, Jesus says, I am 
the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, light is a good thing, isn't it? Generally, when we talk about light, we talk about it in positive, positive terms. Darkness is, is scary and bad, and light is good. So if I'm babysitting, looking after our kids, and it's nighttime, I might turn all the lights off in the house and chase them around the house, and they're screaming and giggling. Aren't you, Gideon? Yeah? <laughs> And Gideon's my oldest, he's 19, he doesn't scream and giggle anymore. Um, And the darkness represents confusion and misunderstanding or lack of clarity. We say things like, oh, I've been in a dark place this week. Or um, I'm going through a dark night of the soul when we're going through a bad time. Or we refer to that period of time called the dark ages where there wasn't much development in terms of economic or social or technological development. It was, it was the dark ages. It wasn't the light enlightenment. It was the dark ages. Uh, and then we have, in Star Wars, we have dark side. Dum, 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 da, dum. Darth Vader, the dark side. It's bad. We have the light and we have the dark And we know that, on the other hand, when light represents uh, good things, we use terms like, a light came on, or I had a light bulb moment where we suddenly get an idea or a fresh understanding about something. We talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. We're going through, when we're going through a difficult time, but we can see the end in sight. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully that light isn't a train coming towards you. (laughs) Who can remember being afraid of the dark as a child? Yeah? Who's still afraid of the dark now? Yeah, really? So, so when you're a kid, you want to have the light on, don't you? You want to have the little night light on? Or you want to have the door open just a little bit, just because that monster under the bed is afraid of the light? Like, yeah, what? what's that about? Um, and as kids, we wanted to have a little bit of light in our room. I wasn't allowed to have my bedside light on at night. I wanted to read. I did, though. I snuck it on. Don't tell my mom. Is she here? Yeah. Um, so I would, I would have my bedside light on and I would read. And I would try and hide it because it was quite a, you know, the old-fashioned lights, the tungsten light bulbs that got really hot and they were really bright? Well, I would cover it with my pyjamas. And that worked fine until my mum and dad came upstairs wondering what the smell was and my pyjamas were on fire. Um, true story. Um, so when Jesus says he's the light of the world, What's he saying? He's saying, maybe you want a life that exists in the light, in a good place, and not in the darkness. A life where you don't stumble all the time, where you're not messing up all the time. And I think it starts with an encounter. I think you need to make the decision to follow Jesus. And, then, and I think he's saying, when you do, your life will be filled with light and you won't be walking in darkness. And that sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? So the context of this statement is kind of crucial because it's not just a statement made um, kind of out of the blue. Something takes place just before he says this. And that's what we're going to look at today. What's the context of this statement? We're going to um, dial back a few verses where we see uh, why Jesus makes this statement. And it comes on the back of an interaction that Jesus has with a, with a lady, in fact. A lady who is at the end of herself. She's probably in the darkest moment of her entire life. 
And she's just about to encounter Jesus. She's just about to encounter the light. And it's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. So if we go back to, we're in the same chapter, verse 8, but we're going to go back to verse 2. So we're going to encounter the light of the world. So from verse 2, at dawn, he, that's Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It's harsh, isn't it? So we've got these various characters in this narrative. We've got the people, first of all. So Jesus is talking to the people with all these crowds. They're wanting truth. They're wanting Jesus to speak truth to them. They want him to, to open up scriptures and bring the word. Um, it's been a long period of darkness for these people. Hundreds of years they've been waiting. There's been no revelation from God in that time, or certainly no substantial revelation from God. None of the prophets in our Bibles that we read happened in the, in the three to 400 years before this. So there's been this period of darkness for the, for the nation of Israel, and they've been waiting for a Messiah, waiting for the light. And they're desperate. The people are desperate to have light shown to them. And so then we've got, so we've got the crowd. We've also got Jesus there who's bringing truth to them. He's being truth. He's bringing the word of God and he's being the word of God. He's bringing light to them and he's being light to them. We don't know what he's teaching them. He doesn't tell us what he's saying, what words he's using, uh, but we do know that they love it. They lapped up. They loved hearing Jesus teach them. They love. He really attracted big crowds. And they said that he made the scriptures come alive. In fact, they said he teaches as one with authority. They said, Jesus, he teaches as one with authority. Now that word, uh, the Greek word authority, is uh, a word, uh, smica. It's a, it's a Greek word, smica. And um, as you were growing up, if you were a child in Jesus' time, you might have gone to rabbi school. The clever kids, they went to rabbi school and they learnt the Torah. They learnt the first five books of the Old Testament. They learnt all about their history. And they, in fact, they memorised it. And, and, and many of those people, some of those kids, went on to become rabbis. Very, very high status rabbis. Um, and then the very best, very few, but the, a, a certain few of those rabbis uh, got so well known and were so good at what they did that they became known as smica rabbis, authority rabbis, because what it later, and what that title enabled them to do was to open scripture and bring their own interpretation. Whereas most rabbis would, would teach, oh, this rabbi says this, this rabbi says this, this rabbi interprets scripture this way. A smica rabbi was able to open the scriptures and bring his own interpretation. And when the people said, Jesus, you teach us one with authority. You teach like a smiker. You're giving us brand new interpretations that we've never heard before and excited them. And they wanted more and more. He brought light and understanding to otherwise dark and difficult scriptures. So we've got Jesus there. We've got the crowds there. We've got the, the, woman, who, the woman there that they just brought in making this journey, who's in this difficult time, in darkness, who's about to experience transformation. And then we've got the Pharisees and we've got the teachers of the law. They're also uh, in this uh, scene. 
And they're the people who are holding on to the past, holding on to their interpretation of the Scriptures. They're the keepers of the law. They're like the Judaism police, if you like, making sure that everyone was obeying the old interpretation of Scripture. Keepers of the darkness. They're like the dark side. Okay, They're like the stormtroopers. Okay? Maybe. <laughs> now, naturally, these teachers in the law and the Pharisees, they really didn't like Jesus' interpretation because it went against what they were teaching. And they were doing everything in their power to stop Jesus' teaching. And they wanted to trap him. They kept trying to trap him with cleverness and with words and with scriptures. And that's, again, what they're trying to do now by bringing this lady. We read in the next couple of verses. They say, uh, so they're talking to Jesus. They bring this woman and they say to Jesus, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And it even says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus is sat there in the temple courts, sitting on a bucket or wherever he sat on, teaching the crowds, and all of a sudden there's a commotion at the back. Let me through, coming through, here I am, I'm more important than you. Do you know who I am? They're bringing, dragging this poor lady down the centre of the crowd in front of Jesus, and she's there, she's head hanging low, she's all uh, humiliated, there's tears streaming down her face, dragging her through the crowd, she knows what's coming, and they say, right then, Jesus, teacher, here's one for you. They're looking so smug. They think this time they've got him. They think he's not going to get out of... uh, Every time they've tried something like this in the past, Jesus has turned it right back onto them. But this time they think they've got him. And actually there's something, uh, there's a truth in this. Because these... uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law, they knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures really well. Like they knew the word so well. They memorized it. But they didn't know the word. Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They had no relationship with the one who brings life to the word. And, you know, we do encourage you in in these services and in other services, we encourage you to read your Bibles on a regular basis. And that's great if you do that. That will, bring, that will bring benefit to your life. But actually, what you need to do is read the Bible inside a relationship with Jesus. And then you'll have the Bible illuminated. You'll have the light. And it'll make far more, far more sense to you. When you have the Bible without Jesus, you get the truth but without grace. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. So these teachers of the law, their interpretation was at best misguided, and at worst it was just plain wrong, leading people into darkness. So in they come. They're all puffed up, all righteous, having caught this woman in the act of adultery. The Bible is quite clear. She's been caught red-handed. There is no question whether she's guilty. There's no question that she's done something wrong. But there is something a little bit wrong with this picture. For a start, adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. And it's probably, I think it's the only Ten Commandment that you can't do by yourself. Okay? You need somebody else. There's got to be two people involved. Now, call me Mr. Picky. But if she was caught in the act, there would have been somebody else there as well. There would have been a man there. You would think. All right, you with me on this? Yeah? There were two people there. And it takes two people to commit adultery. And in fact, when they say Moses commanded us uh, to uh, stone such women, not true. 
Actually, what it says in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, the law commanded that both the man and the woman are both condemned. But they're not really interested in the truth. They're interested in trapping Jesus. They're trying to catch him out. So what's the trap that they've set for him? As far as they can see, Jesus has two choices. He can either agree with him, agree with them, or disagree with them. If he agrees with them and says, yes, she should be stoned according to the law, then he's not only misrepresenting the Mosaic law, just like they are, he's also breaking Roman law, which forbade them to carry out executions. And he loses reputation as a bringer of grace and mercy. And so if he agrees with them, he's in trouble. If he disagrees with them, then they can say, well, this so-called teacher of God is consenting uh, to her sin. So he can't be from God, can he? How can a man from God consent to sin like adultery? So he loses his authority. So they think they've got him trapped. They desperately want some way to accuse him. And if this was you or me, maybe they would have done it. Actually, what are we like? What would we have done in that situation? This is a bit harsh. But what if I was to say to you, okay, there's a person here, there's a guy here today who has been committing adultery. And I pointed him out to you. And I said, this guy shouldn't be in here because he's a sinner. Would you agree with me? Would you disagree with me? Would we condemn him? Or would we show him grace and love and mercy? Because that's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus taught. So let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. This is interesting. We don't know exactly what Jesus wrote. I'm glad, actually, because... Again, we would probably try and make it into a formula. But we don't know what he wrote. Uh, But wherever it was, caused something pretty amazing to take place. Really, really amazing. So on the back of what Jesus wrote and then said, number one, they decided to not carry out the punishment that they thought was the right interpretation of the law. Number two, they decided to not even enter a discussion with Jesus. They didn't even decide to argue with him or debate with him. They just kept stum and walked off. Number three, they decided to just leave the temple courts to walk away. Essentially, can you imagine that walk of shame through all the people? They had to walk all the way back through the crowd of people, losing face, losing authority that they had with all those people. And number four, they left the guilty woman there, who they knew was guilty, Left, left her there with Jesus. So what did he write? It'd be amazing to know. I don't know. There are a number of um, uh, commentaries that talk or uh, try and surmise or try and predict what Jesus wrote uh, at this particular, uh, in the sand at this point. Some people say maybe he wrote down the exact wording of the law, including the fact that it should have been both the man and the woman, although I'm not sure that would have been quite enough to make them walk away. Maybe he wrote down a list of of punishable sins 
that, his, that the, the, her accusers had committed themselves. Maybe. A number of commentaries, and this is what I like, uh, say that Jesus wrote down the names of the accusers who were accusing her and the people that they had committed the same sin of adultery with. Ooh, that would have been something, wouldn't it, if, if Jesus knew that and he wrote down who they had committed the same sin with. That would make them leave pretty sharpish, wouldn't it? You yeah, wouldn't have to say anything. Oh, there's your name. Who's that? <laughs> the truth is, actually, it doesn't matter what he wrote. That's not the lesson. The important lesson here is that everyone there, everyone, the crowd, the people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the woman, they were all guilty of sin. They were all sinners. Yes, this woman was, was caught in the act. But the punishment for sin is not because you're caught, it's because you're sin. So what you had here, you didn't have non-sinners and a sinner. You had non-quarters, if that's a word, that's not a word, but people who hadn't been caught and somebody who had been caught. And in God's eyes, they're all the same. They're just the same. Exactly the same. And in fact, the woman's probably in a better position because if you'd asked her who she was, she would have said, I am a sinner, filled with shame, deserving of punishment. Even when the accusers left, I don't know that she would have felt any better because there's just her now and Jesus. Jesus is still there. And in fact, he's the only one who can throw the first stone because he was without sin. So she's still in darkness, but she's about to encounter the light of the world. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is arguably the most important sentence in the whole of the Bible. If you only knew this, you would understand grace. If we could just fully understand these two statements and apply it to our lives. The accusers didn't condemn her because they couldn't. They didn't have a leg to stand on. They were just as bad as she was. Jesus could have condemned her, but chose not to. First, he says, I don't condemn you. Not because you don't deserve it. You do deserve it. You messed up. But you don't have to face the punishment for what you did. Now, like two weeks ago, we spoke about encountering grace. And this is right at the center of our faith. This is a lesson that so many of us need to hear. Jesus knew that in a short while, this, this act that this woman had committed, this adultery, this sin, was going to be laid on him. He would be on the cross. And this would be one more burden that he would have to bear. He was going to take this on himself, along with everything else that she had done and we had all done. But Jesus is the light of the world. He brings good news. And when we come to him in genuine repentance, he says to you, neither do I condemn you. He doesn't condemn us for our mistakes. A few years ago, it was Easter Sunday, and I'd been in church in the morning, and I'd been held up at church, I think as people wanted to talk to me after the service, and I was due at my mother-in-law's for dinner. 
uh, my wife's parents. And my wife and the kids had all gone already in the car. And I was left with, I had a motorbike back then. I was left with my motorbike. And so I raced out the church car park and I was late. I was like, oh no, late for dinner at your mother-in-law's. Can it get any worse than that? And I'm late and I'm, I'm going and I'm zipping down the road, down the main road, weaving in and out the traffic, come to the lights and I weave to the front of the lights and then just bomb off at the end. I come to a roundabout and just before I get to the roundabout, I hear a siren and I look in my mirror and there's a policeman, a police car who'd been following me, <laughs> weaving through the traffic Hadn't noticed him because I'd been too intent on where I was going. And they pulled me over and they made me sit in the back of their car. So I'm sat there and they said to me, do you know how fast you were going? This is the question they always ask. And at that point, I could have tried to downplay it a little bit. I could have made excuses, but I didn't. I sat there and I made a reasonably high estimate. I don't know what I was going. I made a reasonably high estimate to my speed and then added... I am so sorry. I'm late for dinner with my family, but I've got no excuse. I'm an idiot. I'm guilty of going too fast. I'm really sorry. I know you have to give me a fine. And what they did then was amazing. They showed me the video on their dashboard of me, of me on my bike. And at that point, I'm tempted to go, that is incredible. You can show videos in your car. That is, I didn't say that because that would not have helped my situation. And they showed me the video and showed me how fast I'd been going. Um, and I repeated, yeah, yeah, I'm an idiot. I'm guilty. It's a fair cop. You've got me. Bang to rights. And then they looked at each other and their demeanor changed. They checked my license and then they let me off. And they said, don't do it again. They said, we don't condemn you. Don't do it again. I was guilty. I should have had points. I should have had a fine. I can't say it was exactly the darkest point of my life, um, but the truth is I was guilty. I was totally guilty. And they would have been perfectly in their right to do what they should have done, but they decided to have mercy in that moment. And this is what Jesus multiplied exponentially. This is what Jesus did for this woman. That's why he's the light of the world. And that's why when we choose to follow him, he chooses to enable us to walk in that light. Okay, but that's the first part. I am nearly done, but that's just the first part. JJ, would you mind just coming and playing a little bit? The second part is just as important. So Jesus says to her, go, I don't condemn you, leave your life of sin. This is Jesus, full of grace and truth, I don't condemn you. He not only forgives her sin, calls her to a new life. Jesus is the light of the world. But there is another truth that goes hand in hand with this statement. And it's another statement that Jesus made to his disciples. When he's talking to them, and he's talking to us as well, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the only one of the I am statements that I talked about at the beginning that Jesus applied to himself and applies to us as well. He is the light of the world, but so are we. And us, 
standing out there, the team of people offering bacon butties and choc ices and hot and cold drinks. I think that's being light of the world. That's what we should be doing. That's our life. And also, not condemning people. Showing them grace. Extending mercy. My wife was explaining to me this week how last week she was out there giving leaflets, handing leaflets outside Tesco uh, to people, uh, you know, promoting coming to get bacon butties. And, um, And somebody asked her, why are you giving this stuff away? And she said, because we love Ferndale and think it's great and we want to make it better. That's it. That's why we're here. That's why Jesus makes us the light of the world, to make our communities better. And we don't make it better when we stand on the sidelines condemning people for things that they do wrong. That doesn't, that's not it. We make it better when we extend grace like Jesus did, when we extend uh, truth, when we show love, when we give ourselves away, when we give what we have away, we become the light of the world. And if we're not making our world even better, then why are we here? So two things this morning, two easy, easy, easy things to take away. I want you to encounter Jesus, the light of the world. I really do. And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't, if you don't have that relationship with him, if you never accepted Jesus as your saviour, then I would encourage you to do that. And, and, if you, and if you would like to do that, I would love to pray with you at the end. I'm going to be right here or out there. But just come and talk to me. Uh, a girl did it a couple of weeks ago. Beautiful thing. It's the best decision you could make. Encounter Jesus, the light of the world. That's the first thing. And the second thing, be the light of the world. Be the light of the world to those in darkness. Why? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Ultimately, God will get the glory when we're light of the world. And that's why we're here. Amen. We're done. Great, let me just pray and then we're going to sing a uh, final song to close. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you illuminate scripture uh, to us uh, when we look to you, God. And I pray that if there's any doubts or questions in people's minds, that you would just bring peace into hearts right now and you would be the light in our life. And that as we go out into the world, uh, not just today, God, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day of the week, God, that we would choose to be the light uh, of the world as well, letting our light shine in the way that you did. In your name we ask. Amen.